please bow with me in prayer. Our, our Father, we come to you, and we come to you in the name of Christ. It is only through him that we have any right to think that we, as, as your creatures and, and sinful creatures who've rebelled against you, who've rejected you, who've wandered and strayed, could have any right to come before you. It is only through Christ. So Lord, we come in his name, thankful for his obedient life, his suffering death, his rising again to new life, his interceding before you on our behalf. We thank you for Christ. And it is in his name that we come before you today, praising you, uh, thanking you, enjoying you, and making requests before you. Lord, we pray that you would be honored as we assemble together as your people. Oh, we're sinful. We come with faults. Our motives are not always pure. Lord, even right now, our hearts are not wholly directed towards you. We are distracted. Maybe our minds are filled with things that ought not to be there. Even now, we're disobeying you in our minds and our hearts. And yet, Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ, asking and begging that your Holy Spirit would purify us so that we would be a people set apart for your name, for your glory. Make us into that, we pray. Lord, we pray for us as a body. Lord, some of us come here this morning hurting. Some of us come in need of physical uh, help, in need of physical needs. Lord, some of us are low on money and we don't know what to do. Some of us come facing uh, sicknesses and they scare us. Lord, some of us come for no apparent reason at all just feeling sad. Lord, we need you as our great shepherd, to guide us and lead us and fill us with you. That will, that's what we need most. Lord, we are created for you. And without you, we will be lost and lonely and afraid and suffering. So, Lord, we pray that you would meet our greatest need with you. And be, we pray you would be doing that among us this morning. Lord, we thank you that we're not the only church in our area that believes your gospel. We pray for Solid Rock Church. We thank you for their strong witness for your gospel there and the faithful preaching of their pastors, John and Curtis. And we pray that you would continue to bless them and many would come to faith through their ministry. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word and an important topic in your word, we pray that you would give us uh, hearts and minds that are eager to receive from what you say. And we would learn and we would grow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am going to do something a little bit different than what I usually do this morning. Usually, I talk about a passage in Scripture. But today, I'm going to talk about a topic as seen through all of Scripture. I'm going to talk about the job of a pastor. And if you're visiting with us, please know that that's not what I usually do. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to begin looking at the book of Leviticus. And for the next four weeks, we'll look at the book of Leviticus If you haven't looked at the book of Leviticus yet, I think you're in for a treat. It it should be a fun time. After that, we're going to the book of Judges. And by the way, the logic behind that is that the book of Leviticus gives us laws, that that gives the people of God laws. And the laws, you know, I'm encouraging you to read the book this week. And the laws are, I think, humbling in and of themselves. They're not laws that necessarily respectable people will want to submit themselves with because it tells them not to do all these things that respectable people wouldn't, just wouldn't do. So the mere fact that God gives his people these kind of laws is a little bit humbling and shows us the kind of people we are. 
Read the book of Leviticus, and uh, I think you will be humbled and encouraged. After that, we're going to the book of Judges. And the book of Leviticus tells us not to do all these terrible things. Judges is where we see the people doing all these terrible things. And from that, we're going to see our need for a Savior. So that's what we're going to next week and the weeks after. Keith is going to do a message in there on Joshua. The sermon card explains that. That's where we're going. Today, we're going to look at through all of Scripture and see what is the job of a pastor. What do pastors do? Do we want pastors? How do we know if a pastor is doing his job? What is the job? What kind of authority does a pastor have? Now, you might be wondering, okay, why is he picking this week to do this? Well, to be honest, it is in part because of the uh, vision packet that uh, the deacons and I shared with you. And I want to do this message on what a pastor does, in part to persuade you of the value of pastors. I think it would be a good idea for our church, and I think it would be a blessing to you. I think you would benefit. And I'm doing this message, in part, to help persuade you of that. But I'm also doing this message so that you understand how I see my job. I think that's fair, that you know how I see my job in Scripture. Um. And, uh, and I pray that it will be helpful. I'd be glad to talk to you about it afterwards. I mentioned the idea of maybe doing a formal Q&A session. But I think that's probably not a good idea. But I'm, I'm going to be here. If you have any questions after the service, the weeks ahead, be glad to answer any questions. And we can learn together from Scripture about what is the job of a pastor. Now, there's many ways we could, uh, one could begin thinking about what the job of a pastor is. I mean, I'm not going to to look at this by thinking about church growth stats. I'm not going to think about this by going to best leadership practices. I'm not even going to begin by thinking about our constitution and bylaws, although we could go there, and in fact, we will need to go there. I want to begin by looking at what the scripture says. Because if the Bible has called us to be God's people, and if pastors are part of that, then I conclude, and I think it's reasonable to conclude, that the Bible would be a sufficient guide to explain what is the job description of a pastor. Now, there's many ways we could kind of get into that. If I explained everything, we'd be here for a very long time. Um, You might be looking at your notes and thinking, we are going to be here for a very long time. Well, hopefully not that long. Um, I want to begin, and I'm excited about this, by looking at the idea of shepherding throughout the whole Bible. The Bible is one grand story. And you can tell that story from a few different perspectives. You can tell that story from the perspective of a shepherd. So how do, what does the Bible say about shepherding? The first thing you need to realize is that a pastor, and then we're going to, so we're going to look at what the Bible says about shepherding and then relate that to the job of a pastor. Now, why do we do it that way? Well, because the job of a pastor is a shepherd. That's what the word pastor means. It means a shepherd. Now, that doesn't mean the pastor has physical sheep. I don't have a flock of sheep at my house. Our kids might really like that, but actually it's against GHI rules. It, it, it really is. Um, so, so we know, have no literal sheep. But the pastor shepherds God's people. Um, the pastor, uh, Peter, writes to pastors in various cities in 1 Peter 5. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
The chief shepherd is Jesus. But the pastor is an under-shepherd. A pastor is an under-shepherd charged with shepherding, shepherding and caring for a group of sheep. Now, I'm convinced that if you really want to understand the role of a pastor as a shepherd, you need to begin by looking at God's overall purpose of shepherding in the Bible. And I think the best way to begin that is by looking at one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Psalm 23. This will get us thinking about the role of a shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Beautiful passage. So I was just reading it now. I was thinking about how I recently read that passage at a graveside service. What a comfort it is in the darkest parts of our lives knowing that God is our shepherd. And I think we could see three aspects of God's shepherding uh, in, in this passage. We see one, shepherding is protecting. Shepherding is providing and shepherding is leading. You might want to write those down because we'll be looking at those over and over again. We see God in this passage is protecting. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. A shepherd has two, two tools. A shepherd's staff is that thing with the hook on the end. And he would use it to, to pull back sheep if they were getting ready to go into a place that would be dangerous to them. The shepherd had a rod. And that was to fend off the wild animals that would come and would hurt the sheep. And because of the shepherd's protection, the sheep felt safe even though there was danger about The shepherd protected. The shepherd also provided. We see that in this passage. I shall not want. Has no needs. He leads me beside still waters. My cup overflows. A sheep need green pastures and water or they'll die. The shepherd provides that. It's the job of the shepherd to get the sheep out of the stifling heat and into a place where they could flourish. That's what a good shepherd does. And finally, the shepherd leads. We see that here. He leads me beside still water. He makes me lie down. See, the the whole psalm is about the idea that that the shepherd want to, the sheep rather, want to follow this kind of shepherd. Here's a kind of shepherd that the sheep want to follow. And the sheep will have no good thing unless they follow this shepherd. Now, in Psalm 23, who is the shepherd? The Lord, right? The Lord. And, and friends, that, that means that if you are God's children, he is your shepherd too. And this passage that is comforting to many people in their darkest times, may it be comforting to you. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that you will at least understand that you will have nothing good in life unless you know this shepherd and follow him. Now, what I want to do now is take you on a quick roller coaster ride through the whole Bible and see how God is our shepherd. First, God provides, protects, and leads his people in the Garden of Eden after he created them. 
We won't take time to turn there now, but if you read the opening passages of Genesis, you'll see that God created Adam and Eve, and then he put them in a beautiful garden. And the garden sounds like this ideal place of Psalm 23. It's a place of safety. Outside the garden, they were told to subdue it, which leads me to believe that it might have been a dangerous place out there. But inside the garden was a place of safety. Inside the garden, they had all their needs provided for. The trees in the garden were good for food. Water um, came up out of the garden and gave them life. God realized that it was, he knew all along, it was not good for Adam to be alone, so he provided a helper. In the garden, they have all their needs met. And then God gives them instructions. He tells them how they can live and not die. And as long as they follow him, they will be okay. But as you know, they don't follow him. They don't obey his word. They want freedom and autonomy to choose to go wherever they want to go. They don't want to follow the shepherd. And the Bible describes their sin and all subsequent sin like this. This is from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. As a consequence of their rebellion, they had to leave the safe place of the garden. They had to go out into the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, in God's amazing love, he still cared for them. He was still their shepherd as he took them into the wilderness and in this dangerous place. But God didn't plan to leave them in the valley in the wilderness forever he wanted to take them to green pastures where they would lie beside still waters this is the promised land that we read in the bible it's the land flowing with milk and honey it's called israel's safe pasture and to lead them there god appointed an under shepherd moses moses was actually pastoring real sheep when god called him And that's important because it shows the kind of under-shepherds that God wants to entrust his sheep to. People who have a shepherd heart. You see, God has a shepherd heart for his people. And therefore, he wants those who lead his people to lead with a shepherd's heart. In the book of Acts, we read that Moses actually wanted to lead the people out of Egypt when he was young and important. But no doubt if Moses had tried to do it then, he would have done it out of his own strength and relied upon his own abilities. But yet in Moses' older age, he realizes his utter inability. And when God calls to him and says, I want you to lead my people, he says, who am I that I should go? And God says, I will be with you. And you see, God is there with Moses, shepherding the people. Through Moses, God protects the people from the Egyptian army, from the crushing weight of the Red Sea, from the invading armies, and even from the consequence of their own sin. Through Moses, God provides the people with food in the wilderness and water in the desert. God was with Moses, leading the people out of slavery and into freedom. See, God did everything that a shepherd would do through Moses. Psalm 77 sums it up well. You led the people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Moses is an example of God using an under-shepherd to accomplish his plan. The next example of an under-shepherd we see in the Bible is David. Like Moses, David is also a literal shepherd when God calls him. In fact, it's, it's actually a, a humorous point, really, in Scripture, because uh, the, the prophet Samuel goes to appoint, anoint one of uh, Jesse's sons to be king. And the sons are all gathered there, except for the, the youngest one. He's out with the sheep, 
And then Samuel says, no, bring him in. We want him because God looks at the heart. He has a shepherd's heart. The next time we meet David, he is bringing his food to his brothers who are fighting the Philistines. And they mock him. Oh, shepherd boy, what you do with your sheep? They think his shepherding is his weakness, but yet it is his greatest strength. And it is through his shepherding that he wins the battle. He says, I would fight against bears and wolves that would come to take the, 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 the flock. I can defeat this Philistine Goliath. It is through his shepherding that he wins. And the people have to get used to the fact that their king, David, isn't the same kind of king that other nations have. You see, back then, nobody would rise up from being a shepherd to being king of a nation. That would be ridiculous and a little bit embarrassing for that nation. And yet, that is exactly the kind of person that God wanted on the throne. Somebody with a shepherd's heart. David's commissioning as king reveals his shepherding role. He says, I took you, God says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. And that word ruler is actually from the same root as the word shepherd. Two things are clear in this commissioning. David must shepherd the people. He is called and appointed to be the shepherd. He can't get out of it. He can't do something else. God calls him to do it. And yet, they're not his sheep. They're not his people. God says, shepherd my people. They are God's people. And David will have to give an account for how he handles them. And David was a great shepherd king until he forgot this. One spring when the king should have been out leading the army to protect and to provide and to defend his people, David was at home on his roof looking at a naked woman. And then he sent for her and slept with her. And then to cover up his sin, he had her husband killed. Think about what David did in terms of the shepherding metaphor. David should have been out sacrificing himself for the sake of the flock. But instead, David was sacrificing the flock for the sake of himself. It's interesting how the the prophet Nathan confronts him on this. He tells a story about a man who took a lamb that belonged to a poor man. David realizes what he's done wrong. He realizes he was feeding off the sheep rather than laying his life down for the sheep. And David repents and God restores him. But what was just an unfortunate exception for David then became the norm for the shepherds that followed him. Solomon seduced many women and hurt the people with high taxes. Rehoboam crushed the people with even more taxes and built temples to false gods. Ahab, another king, doesn't stop his wife from killing the prophets of God, and then he seizes land that doesn't belong to him. Israel's history, if you read the book of Kings and Chronicles, Israel's history is replete with example after example of shepherds who are quick to sacrifice the people for their own gain. And we hear this refrain over and over again, that they did not walk in the ways of their father, David. In other words, the leaders of Israel did not have a shepherd's heart. What does God think of this? Well, the passage that Kevin read earlier, Ezekiel 34, explains it. God says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? See, what they've done is they've fed themselves from the sheep rather than feed the sheep. These people have been butchers and not shepherds. And therefore, God says, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hands, and I will put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. 
I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. And then in Ezekiel 37 we read, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. And then God says that he will raise up somebody who is like David to be the shepherd over them. Friends, who is that? Who is like David to be the shepherd over them? Who is that shepherd king? Jesus, yes. I think Jesus is referring to Ezekiel 34 when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the one who's going to go out and gather those scattered sheep. I'm going to have compassion on them, he says, because they are like sheep without a shepherd. Think about it. When Jesus arrives on the scene, uh, the sheep have, it's like the sheep have been ravaged by a pack of wolves. We actually did see real shepherds when we lived in Turkey for a time. And they would lead these huge flock of sheep. And they all follow this one shepherd. I can visually imagine what would happen if this wolf pack of wolves came in and they would just, the sheep would scatter all over the place and there'd be dead, dying sheep lying on the ground and they'd be hurt and lame. It'd be a mess. That's what it was like when Jesus came on the scene. The sheep are scattered. They're lying there, bleeding, hurting. They need someone to, to you know, fix their wounds, carry them, lead them. And that's what Jesus' ministry is all about. And Jesus does the exact opposite thing that the wicked shepherds did. The wicked shepherds sacrificed the sheep for the sake of themselves. But Jesus sacrifices himself for the sake of the sheep. He lays down his life for them. Passage from Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, the greatest danger we face as sheep is not from a pack of wild wolves, but the punishment from our own sin. God is the good shepherd. And there is no reason at all to leave him. No reason at all to wander afar from him. And to do so is a great offense against him. We deserve his punishment. We deserve his wrath. But Jesus, in order to be our good shepherd, first becomes a sacrificial lamb and takes the punishment that the sheep deserve. Jesus does that to protect the sheep to protect them from what is most damaging to them, namely the consequences of their own sin. Jesus also provides for the people. He feeds them in the way that they need it most. We see that clearly in John chapter 6. Jesus says, he's not just the good shepherd, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus gives the only food that can really restore our souls, namely himself. Do you see the great extent that Jesus is willing to go for his sheep? Jesus lays down his life to receive the wrath that they deserve. He feeds them out of his own life. Jesus is indeed the good shepherd. And he says, follow me. And friends, consider who wouldn't want to follow a shepherd like that? Why wouldn't you want to follow a shepherd who loves his sheep enough to give up his life for them? Who feeds them with what they need most, his own life? He leads them with gentleness and kindness. He says, my 
burden is easy and my yoke is light. Friends, the call of the gospel is to follow Jesus. And following Jesus is not following Jesus begrudgingly, knowing that you have to, really wishing you were somewhere else. Really following Jesus is saying, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else than behind this shepherd. Well, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus, I plead with you. Look at him as the good shepherd. See that he is the only one who is going to meet your needs. Trust in him and follow him. Now, what does Jesus do with his authority? Jesus is the good shepherd. He commands people to follow him. And then, what I particularly want to look at this morning, is that he commissions under shepherds. And here's where we get to the part about pastors. Christ commissions people to be his under shepherds. Before Jesus leaves the earth, he says this, Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See what Jesus is doing there? The apostles there are being charged to be God's under-shepherds, to go forth in his name, and he is with them. And through them, Jesus will be calling his sheep together, tending his sheep, caring for his sheep. We see that even more specifically in the commissioning of Peter. Peter sinned grievously, and then he is restored, and Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And Jesus says, what? Feed my sheep. Similar to David, two things are clear with Peter's commissioning. One, he is really responsible for feeding the sheep. God, Jesus tells him to do it, but they aren't his sheep. Feed my sheep, he says. They are Jesus' sheep, and he is accountable for how he feeds them. You see, when the good shepherd leaves the earth, he continues shepherding through his under-shepherds through the people who are charged to protect, provide for, and lead his people. And they do that until the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, appears. Pastors are given delegated authority by Christ to shepherd the sheep. And they do the three things that a shepherd does. One, they protect the sheep. And the need for protecting is very clear in Scripture. Let me read to you a few passages. By the way, I have handed out notes And if you don't have notes, pick them on the way out. They have every single passage that I'm alluding to this morning so that you can look at it on your own and study it on your own. 2 Peter 2, this is the situation that that is before us. Uh, Peter tells us, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Destructive heresies, teachings that are not true and are therefore destructive. And Peter says, they're going to be here among us. And that's why Paul warns Timothy that there will be men who oppose the truth, who will creep into households. And Peter says, or I'm sorry, Paul says, that you will capture weak women burdened with sin. And therefore, Paul tells Timothy that he left him in Ephesus to, quote, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Peter, or Paul left Titus in Crete to appoint elders who could, quote, instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. See, I think all these passages present us with the reality of the situation that that there will be people who come into churches who try to teach wrong things, and these wrong things will 
will confuse the sheep, mislead the sheep, and take them in a place that is not good. And that is exactly why God has appointed people to be in the church to teach, to oppose that false doctrine. Think of it like the the shepherd's two uh, tools. He has the the staff to, as Jude says, pluck from the fire those who are perishing. The, The shepherd needs to pull people away from false teaching. And the shepherd needs to, with the rod, refute the false teaching as it comes up. God has commissioned under-shepherds for the flock for that purpose of protecting. Another means of the under-shepherds protecting the flock that we may not think about as much as is prayer. The apostles say that we must give ourselves to the preaching of the word and prayer. And therefore, I understand prayer is to be one of the two major things that a shepherd must do, a pastor must do. Some people might say, well, why should a pastor spend so much time in prayer? Shouldn't he actually be doing something? Well, I think according to the Bible, prayer really does do something. We read in Ephesians 5 that the defensive armor by which we stand against the evil one is put on by prayer. The pastor must be sensitive to the the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of the congregation, of the congregation as a whole and specific members, and spend much time laboring for them in prayer. The pastor also provides for the sheep. And how do they do that? Well, they do that by feeding them with the word. Paul lists the qualifications of a pastor. And what's interesting about these qualifications in in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that most of them are really just what any Christian man ought to be doing. They're nothing spectacular. The only one that's a little bit unique is the ability to teach. Pastors must be teachers. You see, like Moses and David, God isn't looking for people who are great leaders in the eyes of the world and will instill confidence in the people because of who they are. Rather, God is looking for humble people who will get out of the way and make Christ center through their teaching of him. If people try to lead without teaching, they will end up leading by drawing people to themselves rather than teaching and then drawing people to Christ because Christ is lifted up through his word. And his, his word is explained. The passage we looked at two weeks ago says that Paul, when he came to the Corinthians, he didn't come with persuasive words of wisdom. He came instead preaching Christ and knowing nothing except Christ crucified. You see, what the people need most is not the pastor's wit or wisdom or skill or even his compassion. The people need most is Christ. And Christ is present when he is preached. So preaching, I conclude, is the most important thing a pastor must do. And it's all over scripture. Paul models this in Acts 20. He says, you know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in Christ. That's a passage where Paul is saying, my conscience is clear because I did everything that I could possibly do for you. I taught you about Jesus. Paul also instructs Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearance, his kingdom. Sorry, let me read that again. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach the word. That's the instruction to Timothy. Paul further says to Timothy, devote yourself 
to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to preaching. A pastor is supposed to devote himself to those things. Now, in today's world, not everybody agrees that that's the most important thing a pastor should be doing. I read books on church leadership and pastoring. And some say the, church, the, the pastor's main job is to act kind of like a CEO person and, and run all the programs. Or some think that the pastor ought to give themselves to the meeting of physical needs. Someone a pastor, some people want a pastor they can just hang out with, someone who will provide social encouragement and companionship for people. Now, all of that could have some place, but it really comes down to what do we understand is the primary thing that people need. If the primary thing that people need is Christ, as I think the Bible says, then the pastor's primary duty, above all else, is to preach, because preaching is how people get Christ. And finally, through all this, pastors are also leaders. Pastors are leading. Uh, First Timothy talks about the elders who, quote, rule well. Ruling there isn't so much the kind of ruling that a king would do with sort of absolute authority, but the kind of leading that a ruling that a shepherd would do. Leading, guiding, directing. First uh, Thessalonians 5.12 tells people to respect those who are over you in the Lord. The pastor is called an overseer. Hebrews 13 clearly states, Obey your leaders and submit to them. This teaches us that the church has some sort of authority structure. God puts under shepherds out in front to lead his people. And he tells the people to follow them. Now, right away, people might think, okay, well, that sounds like there's a potential for abuse of authority. And, of course, some, we have all these examples of churches where pastors have abused their authority. What sort of check is there on the pastor that he doesn't go off leading people in a bad direction? Well, let's look at the Bible to see what kind of internal check the Bible puts there. Notice 1 Peter 5. They're supposed to, the leaders are supposed to have oversight, but notice it says, not under compulsion, not domineering those in your charge. That's how they're supposed to lead. They're supposed to lead, but not domineering. Why? Because according to 1 Peter 5, there is a chief shepherd. And when he appears, he will sort everything out. See, the under-shepherds ought to never think for a minute that they're the chief shepherd. That's when they get into trouble. Under-shepherds need to realize that there is a shepherd above them. Hebrews 13, it tells the people to submit to your elders and obey them. Why? For they watch over your souls as those who give an account. Under shepherds give an account for how they lead. You see, with greater authority comes greater accountability. They are charged with leading God's sheep. And God will make them give an account for how they do that. And the reason behind God telling the people that the under shepherds have this greater degree of accountability is so that you will trust them to lead you. Doesn't it make sense that the person who is entrusted with the authority to lead should have special accountability for God? I mean, think about it this way. Don't you want, do you want to work for a boss that has accountability or a boss that thinks he's basically God and can do whatever he wants? You want to work for somebody who realizes that they're under authority. Likewise, shepherds must realize that they are under authority. And as the congregation realizes that the shepherds are under God's authority, Christ's authority, it helps 
in trust, it helps the congregation trust to follow them. Now, because God is the one who holds pastors accountable, it's important to recognize that the pastor is not an employee of the church. Yes, the, the pastor is hired by the church. The pastor is paid by the church. Thankful for that. Appreciate that. The, the pastor can be fired from the church. But the pastor doesn't work for the church as an employee. He works for God. God is his boss. And the first aim, therefore, of a pastor is always to please God. This is what Paul is getting at when he's having a conflict with the Corinthians. And he says to them, the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul is saying there, at the end of the day, I don't really care what you think of me. I only care what God thinks of me. And only if the pastor ultimately doesn't care what the people think of him, but really cares what God thinks of him, only then can the pastor be effective. Because sometimes he will have to say things that the people don't want to hear. Sometimes he'll have to correct them. The only way he can truly represent God to them and not himself is if he doesn't care what they think of him. Otherwise, he's not preaching Christ. He's preaching himself. And he's not trying to help people get connected with Christ. He's trying to help people like him. If a pastor cares what people think of him, then he's not preaching Christ to them. He's preaching himself. And he'll be trying to shepherd them to meet his own ends, to be liked and be respected. He'll be one of the wicked shepherds in Ezekiel 34. And you see, at the end of the day, even if you disagree with the shepherd, which no doubt at some point you will, you want a pastor who works for God. Otherwise, you don't have somebody who will be feeding you, but you will have somebody who is feeding off of you. Now, how do we apply this to our life together? Let me give you three brief general points, and we're almost done. First, I want to plead with you to make sure you're thinking biblically about the roles in the church. Don't presume that your natural inclination of how pastors, church leadership, how it all should work out, don't assume that the natural inclination is necessarily the biblical model. Study the scriptures. That's why I've put some scriptures on notes for you to take home and look at. Study the scriptures and make sure that you are thinking biblically about this. As I was preparing this message, one of the the new things that I saw, it struck me, is that the only way that the congregation and the pastor can really work together is if they both have a high authority of scripture and are both submitted to Christ. You see, God has not given the pastor the kind of authority to uh, demand obedience out of the congregation. God says, don't lord it over them. In other words, don't be a despot. At the same time, God has not given the congregation authority over the pastor so that the congregation can tell the pastor to do whatever they want him to do. Rather, he's put both the pastor and the congregation together under the authority of the word. And the word tells the pastor to take responsibility for shepherding the congregation. And as one who is accountable before God. And the word tells the congregation to follow good shepherds. The relationship only works if both parties are submitted to scripture. If you ask why are there so many fights between congregations and pastors, why... Why do there are pastors who demand too much and who neglect their responsibility? Why are there congregations who won't follow good pastors and want to follow bad pastors? The answer is, they're not submitted to Christ. The relationship between the pastor and the congregation only works if both sides are submitted to Christ. 
And this is by God's design. So that at the end of the day, it is Christ who is really shepherding his people. And he is doing that through the under-shepherds. It only works if everybody is submitted to Christ. Christ is then feeding his people. Christ is protecting his people. Christ is leading his people. And friends, when that works together, it is a beautiful thing. The church is not the place where anybody can lead with a strong personality or being domineering. The church is the place where we are all submitted to Christ and he leads. He leads through his word, through his spirit, through his under-shepherds. So friends, whether you are aspiring to the office of a pastor, which by the way is a really good thing to do, and I want people here to be aspiring to that. If you're aspiring to the office of a pastor, or if you hold the office of a member, the most important thing you can do for the health of the church is be consciously submitted to Christ and take your understanding of who you are and what you should do from the scriptures. Now, second point of application. Realize that it really matters. This isn't just a superficial point. It really matters. Paul tells Titus to, quote, appoint elders and set the church in order. And I think those two are actually related. Without proper authority, the church is in disorder. And a disorderly church is not a good witness for the gospel. But sadly, today, many churches are in disorder. I once invited a person to come to a church, and he said, quote, I won't go to that church. There's a lot of drama at that church, and I don't like drama. Without submission to Christ, there is much drama with power struggles and people trying to get what they want, and one person leading here and leading there. But when we're submitted to Christ, the drama is of a loving shepherd who lays down his sheep and continually provides for them and cares for them and leads them. We want our church to be filled with that drama. Finally, last bit of application. Pray. Would you pray that God would raise up more shepherds? I think that we need more shepherding in this congregation. I think it's one of the biggest needs. So join me in praying for that. Pray that God would raise up more people to shepherd in this congregation. There are some great things that people are doing. And I'm encouraged by that. We need more shepherding in the congregation. Pray that God would do that. Now I want to make one more step in this journey. We're walking through all of scripture looking at shepherds and the theme of shepherding. And I want to leave you not with shepherds in the church, but I want to leave you at one more place. You see, right now, the Bible talks about the church as being in the wilderness. Through under shepherds, Christ is taking the church right now through the valley of the shadow of death. This isn't our place of rest. We know that. We live in a world that, that disagrees, sometimes vehemently, with what we hold dear. We're not in a place of rest. We're not in safe pasture. Hopefully the churches to some degree that. But in terms of where we live now, we live in the wilderness. And yet God won't lead us there. He will bring his church safely to its final destination. We read that in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Let me read it to you. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Why? Listen. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, just as God was leading his people through the wilderness to the promised land in the days of Moses, so he will lead his church to the place of ultimate rest. And every tear will be wiped away. 
There will be no more valley of the shadow of death. No more suffering. No more pain. But friends, be sure of this. Those who follow Christ through the scorching heat, through the dry and thorny ground, will arrive at that place of rest. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd. Jesus, we are amazed at what you would do to care for your sheep. We are but sheep. We make foolish decisions. We wander off. And yet you care for us. You even lay down your life that we may not experience the wrath and judgment that we deserve, but may have life everlasting. And we may feed off of you, feed off of your flesh. That is, by your sacrifice, we have life. We thank you for this. And we pray that we as a congregation would grow in following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.